morning. Please turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 7. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Good morning. It is good to be together this morning. A rainy day in Texas apparently is a good day in Texas. As I said earlier, you know, coming from Ohio, I'll take rain any day as compared to the precipitation that's probably happening up there today in the form of white stuff falling from the sky. That's why I moved to Texas to get away from that. If your Bibles are open to Deuteronomy chapter 6, you can keep them open there, but keep this in mind as we are going to bookend our sermon around this verse. If you've been reading through your Bible, as Eric has uh, brought forward uh, at the beginning of this month, reading through the New Testament in 30 days, it's the 29th. We're getting there, so hopefully you're almost done. I finished mine last week. I know, overachiever, but I had a lot of travel, so I had a lot of time to read and build that up. So I don't want to spoil the ending for you, but God wins. It's a good ending, all right? So hopefully you're going through that. Um, But January has been a month focused on the concept of change. If you're caught up on the series that Eric has been presenting thus far, you know that change is possible. It's something that you can do, and by God's grace, it is possible, but it is difficult. Change can also be very deceptive, as we discussed last week. Change is appealing, and talking about change is easy, but neither of those things is actual change. I don't want us to walk away from our time together this morning merely talking about change. This morning, as we continue with the idea of change and the idea of growing and going together as the body of Christ, change is often necessary in order to truly grow. And growth and change are two major elements of what our lesson entails this morning. And as you can see on the screen, it is titled, Changing Your Perspective on Youth Ministry. Now, I want to stop any errant thoughts that may be running through your mind at the hearing of that title from the get-go. If you think that this sermon has no relevance to you, please don't tune out. I guarantee you that it is relevant to every person who is a member of the Lord's Church, whether you have young kids, old kids, adult children, no children, even if you don't even have plans to have children in the future. This applies to every member of the church. If you think that this lesson is intended to introduce new ideas contrary to the Bible, well, I hope that you are going to listen even harder and put it to the test of Scripture to ensure that it is in line with Scripture. It is my aim, certainly, to bring the truth of Scripture to light in regards to ministering to young people. With that in mind, allow me to offer some thoughts this morning on why change is needed in regards to our perspective on ministering to youth. And I say our because I've had to change my perspectives on this as well throughout the course of my life, really. See, I came from a traditional youth ministry structure, and looking at the results in my own life, 
and the results of the lives of others that I was in youth group with, it has sparked intrigue in my mind now for decades as to how the church can better serve parents and our young people that those parents are raising. So when we talk about why change is needed, we have to discuss the ugly truth. We'll get to the good news. We'll get the truth to the truth of God's word in a bit. But we have to at least address the ugly truth that's been going on over the past several decades. In fact, I heard after our morning services this morning that uh, this data that we're going through, that we're going to talk about this morning, was true back in the 1970s as well. So nothing's new. Does that mean we just keep doing the same thing over and over? Certainly not. There are some, uh, several studies that have been done by different researchers, some within the church and some outside. This first book here is called You Lost Me. It's by David Kinneman. He's one of the major researchers, main key researchers at the Barna Group that does a lot of uh, Christianity-based research. Uh, within this uh, study, he studied Christians that were 18 to 29 years old and documented the findings of the number of youth who were leaving the faith. His book covers most of what, we, what would be referred to in the, in the broader sense as Christendom or churches who claim Christianity as their faith focus. So it is very broad and it encompasses the whole spectrum. Brother Flavel Yakely, or Yeakley, depending on what part of the country you're from, wrote a book focused on the church, why they left. It focuses on this same trend that's been going on in the Lord's church. Both of these books came out about 10 to 12 years ago. And right about the same time, too, and both report a range of about 40 to 60% of young people leaving faith behind after high school. Typically, those who are middle of the road in terms of doctrine and traditions, etc., they see a lower range, closer to the 40 to 55%, where those who are very far right or very far left, they're seeing more along the lines of the 55 to 60% leaving faith. These numbers represent those who are completely leaving faith, abandon what they were surrounded with as a child. When people say we're losing more than half our kids after high school, that is not an arbitrary number that people just throw up into the atmosphere and hope that it's right. It's supported by sound research. It's been well-researched by many, many people. And we can even look back at the graduating classes of this congregation or perhaps the, the youth group that you were a part of when you were young or other congregations that you've been a part of in your life and look back at the youth and where they are today. You'll see that the numbers are similar. David Kinneman recently updated his research a couple years ago in a book titled Faith for Exiles. The focus was more on who was staying while showcasing those who were leaving as well. So of those who are staying, Kinnaman wanted to dive into those who are resilient disciples, as he calls them. And I think that name is a good name. The categories that he uses to specify who fits into this category of of 18 to 29-year-olds are Christ followers who, number one, attend church at least monthly and engage with their church more than just attending worship services. Secondly, they trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. Thirdly, they hold true and are committed to Jesus personally and affirm that he was crucified, he was raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. And lastly, they express a desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. In Kinnaman's latest study of 18 to 29-year-olds, he categorizes these 
findings into four groups. The first group makes up 22%. He calls them prodigals. These are ex-Christians. They've completely left faith. They no longer identify as Christian despite having considered themselves Christian or attending Christian churches as a child. 30% he calls nomads or unchurched. They're people who identify as Christian but have not attended church during the past month. The vast majority, though, have not been involved with the church for six months or longer. That's 52% of those who have studied that have fully or mostly abandoned faith and church attendance. Of the remaining 48%, 38% are categorized as habitual church grower, goers. Those who describe themselves as Christians and who have attended church at least once in the past month, which I would not categorize as habitual, but uh, this is the data set that we have. They also do not meet foundational core beliefs or behaviors associated with being an intentional, engaged disciple, which the way that I would categorize this is checkbox Christians, right? They go to church, check, I did my duty for the week, now back to my regularly scheduled programmed life. 10%. 10% are resilient disciples. That's right. 10%. One in 10 would be classified in this research as those who fit those four categories I mentioned earlier. Regular attendance, trusting the Bible, holding true to core beliefs about salvation, and wanting to change society with their faith. The term resilient disciples, I think, is a great label and an important distinction because the way that I read this research, the way I read those categorizations, that's exactly what Scripture says that we are to be as disciples of Christ. We are to hold firm to these things. We are to be changing the world. The apostles turned the world upside down because of their faith and because of the preaching of the Word of God. It's even more important today because we are living in a post-Christian age in a post-Christian country. And while we may not want to admit that, it is very true. I think it's been this way for a while. But I think over the past four to five years, probably even the past decade, We've seen such a dramatic and fast-moving shift from morality into depravity within society. You can just turn the TV on for 10 minutes on any channel and see it. We have moved so far away from morality to the extent that Pew Research Center says that Christians are now on the path to be the minority in this country in the next five to eight years. That's because the world, culture, etc., has infiltrated denominational teaching. It's infiltrated the church's teaching throughout the brotherhood as well. Folks, when the world starts influencing the church, the church stops influencing the world. More so now than just five to ten years ago, anyone who is truly a disciple of Jesus is going to face conflict at work, at school, with neighbors, even family, where someone may sharply disagree with your faith and your values. You'll get mocked, you'll get talked down to, made fun of, even get fired from your job for not, because you're not willing to sacrifice your values. Do you have the resiliency to stand up for Christian values, to stand up and firm in the truth of God's word? Or is that when you leave? When, you're, when you face those trials, is that when you abandon faith so that you can fit in to the world? 
so that you can fit into the culture, so that you can fit in with your group of friends at work or your group of friends at school. I look at these descriptors and I think this is a challenge for all of us who claim to be Christians. Not just our young people, our adults struggle with this as well. But to our young people, growing up in this world so dominated by technology and ease of access to sin, culturally accepted sinful living, only 10% stand apart. One in 10. What does that look like? Here are our young men who served in our worship assembly last week. This picture was taken after the worship. They did a fantastic job, gentlemen, great job. Of this group, I don't want to play favorites. I don't want to point anybody out as specifically this person's going to leave the faith, this, this person's going to stay in the faith. So let's get rid of that and let's just make them silhouettes. Now let's take them from the church. They've graduated high school. They've moved on to college. This is what one in 10 looks like. Statistically speaking, after high school, this is what 10% remaining looks, faith, looks like, who are remaining faithful. Parents, grandparents, not in this photo specifically, but in general, where will or where are your children within that spectrum? Those who are married and wanting to have children or those not married and wanting to in the future, where will your children be on that spectrum? To those whose children have left home, perhaps you see this in their life as well. Don't lose heart. We must make our own decisions around faith. We cannot save anyone. We cannot force anyone into the waters of baptism. They have to make that choice. They have to make the choice to be, remain faithful unto death. Yet, is there something that you can do now to bring them back? Is there something that you can do now to help the next generation coming up in the Lord's church to become resilient disciples, to help parents of that next generation to foster an environment where the soil is being tended well for the seed to be planted and watered for God to provide the growth? If you think this can't happen here or it's unlikely to happen, allow me to share with you some data from the 2016 graduating class from Westside. Of the approximately 20 youth who graduated that year, approximately two are still faithful. I'm not a mathologist, but two in 20, that's 10%. The numbers line up. And I'll take a slightly educated guess that the numbers are similar, if not identical, with other classes as well. Let me say this. If you're here this morning and you're a parent, or you're a, a, one of the youth, or you're visiting, we are going to fight for your children. And I hope that we will do that together. So what can we do? You know, I look at these statistics and it scares me. It, it does. Our, our families 
I'm worried for our families and our young people. I've been for decades now. As I look at the youth group I grew up in, the youth group my wife grew up in, the, uh, the, the youth groups of congregations we've attended, etc., youth ministry isn't changing these numbers. No matter the strength of the lessons in the classroom, no matter how good of a youth minister or pulpit minister that you have, these numbers aren't changing. They're not changing because of a youth ministry. They're not changing because of programs or church camps, youth events, or even Christian colleges. So what can we do? I know all of this sounds hopeless, and you feel like you're getting punched in the face and stomped on the toes right now. We have to change. There is no other way around it. Change our perspective on youth ministry. We have to recognize and accept the ugly truth that this world is having more influence on our young people than we want to admit. It's having more influence on our young people than the church is having on them. Our young people are leaving in droves. The research I cited earlier was across the denominational spectrum. Within the Lord's church, the numbers are similar or worse because some are abandoning the Lord's church for false teachings of denominations, for going off into an emotional, feel-good coddling of non-Bible teaching churches. I wouldn't even call them churches. But that is the truth, and it's ugly. So what can we do about it? This is a problem the church is facing, and it's something the church needs to address as a whole. Not just an eldership, not just deacons, not just ministers. And mind you, this is not unique to us, right? Across Christendom, this is happening. Across other religions, it's happening as well. The world is powerful. The word is stronger. Ultimately, it all comes back to what Eric began our series on change focused on, and that's personal responsibility. If we recognize the need for change, then we have to devote ourselves to it. We have to trust that change can happen. We have to recognize the difficulties that will come, but know that in the end, as appealing as change can be, we can't just talk about it. We have to do something about it. This is what my focus has been and will be for the foreseeable future. We all fall short. None of us is perfect. I certainly am not perfect. Most of what I'm saying today, I'm preaching to myself, and you just get to listen to me talk to myself. I need these reminders as well. We all need these reminders. I don't have all of or really many answers yet as to the how, so I went to the instruction manual that God left us, and I dove into what he breathed out, which is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, so that we as the body of Christ, the children of God, who have been chosen and sanctified, made into a royal priesthood to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does the Bible teach us in regards to establishing a firm foundation of faith in our children? to develop resilient disciples in our home, within the congregation here at Westside, so that future generations may be blessed as well and counted among the saints as well as they go out sowing the seed of the kingdom and seeking and saving the lost. Where do we start? <laughs> Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. I have written down on a 3 by 5 card and an elder in my previous congregation who wrote pretty much the entire Bible onto three by five cards, verse by verse, and carried them in his pocket, and so he, he passed that on to me. 
Colossians 2, 6 through 7 has been written on a 3 by 5 card that I have kept near me and read regularly since I've started in this position on January 1st. It's become sort of a mission statement of sorts for me as I work to ensure my own children's faithfulness, but to also encourage families to do the same for their children. It says, therefore, as you received Christ, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving, just as you were taught. Why? Paul goes on to say that we're to do this so that we're not taken captive by false doctrines, by empty deceit, by man-made traditions, etc. Paul says we have to walk in Christ just as we received him, with that humble obedience that we received Christ as our Lord. We have to be rooted and built up in him, establish our faith just as we were taught. This indicates that there is a necessity of being taught foundational truths from God's word so that those who are being taught will have a firm root base, a firm foundation in the word of God, and grow from that root base so that they may stand firm against the winds of deceit, tribulation, and hardship that comes as part of professing Christ as Lord. Where does the responsibility lie with establishing those roots for our children? Ultimately, as I said, they have to make the choice to obey and follow. However, Is the soil being prepared? Is it being tilled? Are the weeds being removed? Are the thorns being cleared away? Are the rocks being removed from the soil so that that seed can be planted in good soil? Is the seed being planted and watered at home? Are they merely being converted to their parents' religion or church choice? Or are they being converted to be disciples of Christ? Living for him, serving him, and trusting wholly in his word. Pew reports that only 11% of young adults who left the faith say that they had a strong faith as a child. The other 89% reported they had no real faith. Church, our children are not retaining what they never had. We can't expect them to just come into a faith that they never had as a child when they leave home. The ministering of our youth can only be successful when it begins in the home, when it is supported by the home life and the life of the examples in the home and reinforced by the church. That is the biblical model of ministering to youth. I am not, the church is not, the elders are not, the deacons are not replacements for the responsibility of a parent. The Bible specifically charges this to fathers. Build up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. So to answer the question, where do we start? It starts with parents. Firm foundations of faith begin within family. It should come as no surprise that the nuclear family is under attack in our culture. The family structure that God created and intended to create, that is man and wife with children... That is God's creation, and there is purpose to that. Next quarter in the Young Families class, we'll be studying the topic, Building Godly Homes, and looking at what the Bible teaches regarding that purpose and how to apply it in our home. This class is for any family, any family that has children, high school age and younger. If you're a married couple hoping to have children someday, this class is for you as well. Perhaps you're raising a grandchild and you're in a different stage of life. Hey, this this class is for you as well. We'll also try to record this class to make it available on our YouTube page and our website. So there, there's my shameless plug for next quarter. 
We have duties as members of our families. We have to take personal responsibility for the tasks that have been set before us by God as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as married and single. As members of the household of God, what impact should our faith as Christians have on our physical families? What are our responsibilities as Christians who are blessed with familial relationships? Well, consider first the men. Christians who are husbands and fathers. The duties of the husband are very clear. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and following says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. He is to love her as her own body, as his own body, nourishing and cherishing her. Husbands are to leave mother and father and cling to their wife, to be joined with one's wife. The husband, therefore, gives his wife priority over his parents. Now, let me ask you this. If you leave the sphere of influence of your parents and put a higher priority on your spouse, and your spouse does not hold to the same beliefs as you, where does your sphere of influence change? Well, that wife has a higher priority. And in some who do not have a strong foundation of faith, they're going to leap over to the foundation of faith that their spouse has. That's why it's important to encourage our young men and women to seek Christians as mates. Husbands are not to be bitter towards their wives. Colossians 3.19, do not be harsh with them, the ESV says. In our, in our, the new revised standard uh, renders it, never treat them harshly. Husbands are to be understanding and give honor to their wives, 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Understand their delicate nature. Honor them as heirs according to the grace of life. They also, men, you also have duties as a father to provide the necessities of life. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14, 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, details this very clearly. Parents are to provide for their children. It says in 1 Timothy that a man who fails to do so is worse than an infidel. Fathers, you're called not to provoke your children to anger, to wrath. Ephesians 6, verse 4, Colossians 3, verse 21, that is by unreasonable commands, by needless severity, by regular anger, thereby you may continually find fault with them, leading them to lose all courage and cause them to worry about never being able to be pleasing to you. Fathers, you are called to provide spiritual training for the children, as we mentioned in Ephesians 6, verse 4, bringing them up in the training, or as the ESV renders it, discipline of the Lord, bringing them up in admonition, or as the ESV says, instruction of the Lord. Fathers, you are to provide loving discipline as necessary. Hebrews 12, 6 through 11, talks about the discipline that even our heavenly father does for his children. So too, we are to discipline our children. Proverbs 13, 24, it may be unpleasant at the moment, but it is something we should do. Spare not the rod. These are familiar, familial responsibilities of Christian men as husbands and fathers. Now let's consider the ladies. As Christian wives and mothers... Wives, you have the duty to submit to your husband. Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. Submit to them as to the Lord, as is fitting to the Lord. Submit to them in everything, as the church is subject to Christ. Culturally, that's, that doesn't fit. That doesn't mesh with culture, but that's God's culture. I don't care what the world says. This is God's culture that we're talking about. 
Wives are to respect and love their husbands. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. Titus chapter 2, verse 4 talks about this as well. Not just to submit, but to do so with respect and love for their husbands. And also, older women are supposed to teach younger women how to do this. Because apparently, loving men is difficult. I don't know why someone amen there, but... I, think, I feel like a couple husbands have bruised ribs right now. Mothers, as Christians, you are called to love your children. This ought to be natural, yet sin can, of course, lead to a lack of proper, proper affection. Romans chapter 1, verse 31 says this. Mothers are called to manage the household. Titus chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14. The primary responsibility of the wife and mother is this, to manage the household. Though a woman may, of course, also engage in outside activities. Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman, details this very clearly. Mothers are to provide spiritual training, especially when male leadership is lacking. And unfortunately, this is all too common today. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Acts 16, verse 1. We are introduced to young Timothy and his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, they were the ones, not his father, who was either not a believer or just not present, but Lois and Eunice were the ones who built up a firm foundation of belief and knowledge of the scriptures in Timothy. Paul told Timothy to rely and remember those things. These are the duties of Christian women as wives and mothers. Now, let's not forget the important role and instruction that God has provided for children and also for those who are not married. Duties of children. You have the duty to obey your parents. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, Colossians 3, verse 20. If you're a child, you've probably heard this verse recited several times in your house, probably multiple times a week. You are to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. In all things, for this is well and pleasing to the Lord. You are called to honor your parents, Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says that this is the first commandment with a promise, and you can find that promise in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. But this honoring of your parents... Is also goes well beyond just your childhood years. First Timothy talks about how children are to provide for the welfare of their parents later in years. How about the singles? I think, statistically speaking, and, and looking uh, around the brotherhood and in my own experience, uh, young professionals, singles, are probably one of the most underserved in the church. They leave the home, they go off to college, they don't find a mate, they come back. Why aren't they married yet? Don't do that. Perhaps they haven't found the spouse that meets the requirements that they have as a Christian. Because we only have 10% staying around. The pool is getting smaller. Singles, you have some duties in Scripture as well to utilize the spiritual advantage of being single. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 through 35, Paul details this. Use your freedom to increase your service to God. Don't be selfish with your extra time and the freedom that you have, and don't begrudge others who may not do as much as you because they have other responsibilities like a family or a spouse. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9, lists out several dangers that single people are to be on the watch for. The first of which, is, of course, is temptation. Make an effort to develop a close relationship with the Lord so that you are not privy to temptation. 
The other danger is loneliness. Boy, loneliness is, that's the devil's playground. It is what he often uses to push us towards sin and away from God. It's why God made woman for man. Because for the first time in his creation, he saw that Adam was alone and he needed something else and he saw it was not good for him to be alone. Everything else was good, but it was not good for Adam to be alone. The church, as well as a body, is, in, it is intended to be together regularly, to build one another up, to love and good works, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. The body of Christ is relational intentionally. So, to avoid loneliness, accept invitations to be with others. Initiate opportunities to be with others. Don't fall victim to loneliness. Be on the watch for it. The Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes also says to be on the watch for self-centeredness. Offer yourself in service to others. Be flexible. Single Christians, you also have a duty to remember that you are in the family of God. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 30, Jesus says that we have many mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children in the Lord. If you've ever traveled by yourself to another area of the country and gone to a Lord, the Lord's church to worship with that body, how quickly do you realize that you are surrounded by mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children? It's pretty quick. And you'll probably find really quick that there's 18 different people that you all know. Make an effort to develop and utilize relationships with your brethren. Lastly, and most importantly in my estimation, is the role of the Christian as a disciple within the family. Now let us consider our job description as disciples so that we can find out what those principles are so that we can put them in the proper perspective. Matthew chapter 28 Verses 18 through 20, Christ, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, tells his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have to put discipleship in the proper perspective in our own lives, but also within the family. The command of Jesus in the original language is make disciples. The ways by which this is completed uses three things. As you are going, baptizing, and teaching. As the apostles were going, and today as Christians are going, the preaching of the gospel is implied. Mark's gospel account of Jesus' statement says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Those who choose to respond to the gospel are, through baptism, introduced into a relationship with the fullness of the Godhead. Those in this new relationship begin their walk as disciples and as such are instructed in the ways of Jesus. There is absolutely zero room here for a go-to-church-on-Sunday Christianity. You'll find that nowhere in Scripture, that that's the only thing that you're supposed to do, to check that box off on Sunday and then go about the rest of your life. The Bible speaks of the church going, not people going to church to check off a box. Taking up Jesus' ways of denying ourselves, bearing our cross daily, that is the nature of Jesus' call to everyone who chooses to follow after him. Engagement in all areas of life and in all places where we find ourselves is the nature of true Christianity. If discipleship, the command that's given in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through, or 19 through 20, by the one who has all the authority was given its rightful 
and divine due, then I am convinced that the percentages of our young men and women who leave the church would dramatically decline. Engaged, transformed disciples would find it much more difficult to leave and be swayed by the winds of deceit and temptation that exist in the world than those whose investment was more like an affiliation rather than a way of life. So how can we build this up in our families? We have to put the Lord before family. Of course, we're supposed to love our parents. We're supposed to love our spouses and our children. We talked about that. But our love for the Lord has to come first. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We're not even worthy to be called his disciple if Jesus doesn't have the proper position in our life. By putting God and his kingdom first, our families will benefit more. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Not seek ye first towards the things that you want to do. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. God's providence will help provide for our family needs and will also be better parents, spouses, and children by following Jesus. Additionally, when we put the Lord before family, the desires of God influence our decisions as parents, as husbands, as wives, as children rather than those in our family whose choices may be influenced by the world. Culture is influential. Friends, family are influential. Friends at school are probably some of the most influential people in your children's lives. Why? Because they're around them more than you, oftentimes. They give them the attention that they need more than parents sometimes. And when their friends want to do something that perhaps a child knows is not right to do, and they ask their parents, should I go and do this thing that they, that they want to go do? And their parents are like, well, I don't know if that's a really good idea, but I don't want you to lose friends. Oh, when we allow the world to influence the church, the church loses its influence on the world. We cannot let culture, the world's culture, influence Jesus's culture. We have to be instilling that in our family. We also have to present the Lord to the family. We do this by way of example. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, Peter writes that believing wives were to influence their unbelieving husbands. By our disciple-focused living, we can influence other believing members of the family. We do this also by way of instruction. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, you might be catching on. It's kind of a theme verse of this. Fathers, bring up your children in the dis discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers are to instruct their children. Mothers are to do it when the fathers are not doing it. We can teach God's word to other members of the family. If you don't feel that you're able to teach God's word to your family, is this something that you need to change? Is it something that you're willing to change in order to aid your family in building up a resilient faith? The nuclear family is a wonderful blessing intended by God to consist of husbands and wives who love and respect one another, parents who love and discipline their children, and children who honor and obey their parents. As Christians, our familial duties are clear. Whether you are a husband and wife, whether you are parents and children, or whether you are married or single, 
Our faith in Christ must lead us to be the, the best spouses and the best parents and the best children and the best singles that we can possibly be. The nuclear physical family is just one family type that we need to focus on encouraging and building up in order to stop the high rate of our young people leaving the church when they leave home. The other family we need to build up is the family of God, the church. Resilient faith is reinforced by the church. And we have a role to play. There's personal responsibility. Coming back again to Eric's first lesson in this series. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul tells the church to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, let's change that because sometimes there's village idiots. Let's change that to it takes a church to raise a child. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The more people that we have in our children's lives supporting and building up a resilient faith, the less likely they are to abandon it. Proverbs 22, verse 6, perhaps you've heard this one, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's for everybody. Whether it's your child or somebody else's child, train them up in the way that they should go, in the way of the Lord. This training, of course, begins at home, but it must be reinforced and built upon by faithful Christians as well. Historically, at least in my experience, when faith is not established at home, and the church is the one establishing the faith, and the home is not reinforcing it, those are the ones that lose it. Those are the ones that go away because they are, not being, they are not being built up. They are not being taught at home. And their faith is not being established at home. And therefore, when they go to church, it's not being reinforced. It's being taught there. There has to be establishment and buildup. There has to be establishment and reinforcement to create and build resilient disciples. Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 reinforces the need for congregational unity and support. If there is any encouragement in Christ, Paul writes, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this brings to mind fellowship, which is what we talked about in our auditorium class last week. Koinonia, to share in, fellowship with, participate with. The early church was devoted to this, along with the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, and prayer, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and following. The church is relational by nature. It is built on the foundation of Christ through the work of sharing the gospel one to another. Disciples creating disciples who create disciples who create disciples. That's church growth. Parents should be evangelizing their children at home, making disciples at home. And the brethren in Christ should be evangelizing their children as well. Not only is this biblical but it is supported in research as well. This graphic from Faith for Exiles, again from David Kinneman in the Barna Group, shows the research related to the importance of relationships in young people. I want you to focus specifically on the first three items on the list, 
in that far right column, which represents the resilient disciples. 83% of resilient disciples, which remember makes up 10% of youth after high school, have at least one close friend they trust with secrets. This is an essential aspect of adolescent development. When it comes to faith, it's also important as so many youth feel judged if they have questions, if they have doubt, if they have concerns, or if they're even struggling with sin. As such, they are less likely to confide in a Christian. However, in this research, resilient disciples reported confidence in sharing with other Christian friends. 81% had, a close, had close personal friends who were adults. My children excel in this. And I don't say that to be braggadocious. That's because they were the youth group at our previous congregation. All they had around them were adults. All they had to talk to and communicate with were adults. And we see it still today that they love talking with adults, connecting with those older than them, and learning from them. That encouraged us to continue with that trend here, identifying strong mentors to help give guidance and support to our children. And we'll talk more on mentorship here in a minute. Lastly, 77% responded that they have someone in their life other than family who they go to for advice or personal issues. Church, this shows us the need for resources for our young people outside of just the family. Parents, don't be discouraged that young people need that outlet. It's natural, but if you set up open communication and trust in the home, you'll find that the, con the confidence in your children to confide in you will grow. We'll talk about more about that in our young families class next quarter. But remember, the church is a resource, not a replacement. Let's talk about mentorship. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, teaches that older men and older women have a responsibility to teach younger men and younger women, respectively. Older men are to teach sound doctrine, being sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. They are to lead by example and teach younger men. Older women... Be similar in behavior. Be reverent, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Teach what is good. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. We have a great need for our older men and women who are able to teach, to step up and teach. I have heard some in the past refer to their retirement and years of service teaching, which is wonderful. We don't discount that at all. But it is important to note that you don't get to retire from your Christian duties. I've heard it said, and I love it, and I'm going to repeat it. You don't retire until you expire. Teach, guide, and edify with grace and with love. Lord willing, as we continue to formulate the structure and plans for implementing ministry efforts to better equip our families and young people, to become resilient disciples, holding fast to the word of God, there will be more opportunity for all of us as the body of Christ to help in this effort because it takes the church together in unity to support the future of our children. Research shows it takes at least four faithful Christians to lead one child to resilient faith. If just two are mom and dad, two more are needed. Your influence is essential and it's needed. So, Get involved. Let parents know that you are a resource for them. 
show hospitality to families, grow relationships, host the youth group in your home for a devotional and meal, lead the devotional, ask questions, volunteer to sponsor and chaperone events with the youth, invite youth to take part in hobbies or service work, etc. Invite a kid over to mow your lawn, fix them some sweet tea, sit down on the back porch and talk about life, find out how they're doing, Bonus, you get a mowed yard, okay? There's a free tip for you to take home. Appropriately impart your wisdom on young people and families. Key word there is appropriately. Lastly, do not decry doubt. Doubt is natural and it is essential for anyone who is developing their faith to question things. The Bereans questioned what they were being taught and put it to the test of Scripture because they wanted to make sure that what they were being taught was right. Doubt is essential. Do not decry it. Doubt is not necessarily unbelief. However, if it's not handled correctly, it can lead to unbelief. Use it as a teaching opportunity. Use it as an opportunity to sit down and study and get into the Bible and learn more. You may, be, you may benefit from it. They certainly will. But together, seek the truth from the Bible. You just have to have faith. Is not an effective or accurate answer to many questions that people have regarding Scripture or regarding difficult times in their life. Be ready in season and out to present the Word of God. We're told to be ready to present a defense for the hope that we have within us. This requires your own personal spiritual maturity to continue to grow. In this way, we can edify one another, we can teach each other, and we can bear up one another's burdens. So what can we do? We have to change. Now change, when spoken of from the pulpit, always makes ears perk up. What are we changing? Now, I know from my experience that I've been through sermons and lessons and lectures pertaining to changing doctrine. And so that word change always raises a red flag for me. Change can be negative, but it can also be very positive. But when we consider the idea of growing and going, in order for one to grow, change is inevitable. Think about a seed. A seed has to change in order to grow. When a caterpillar grows, it retreats to a dwelling of safety, trust, and comfort in order to grow and change into a butterfly or moth. The church, which, of course, by the nature of it, involves Christian parents who are a part of the body of Christ, the called out ecclesia. So it's the church, the people, not the building or the local congregation, but the church, parents and members of the Lord's church. They form a type of cocoon for young people to be safe, to question, to explore and build up their faith. If we don't provide that, they're going to find a cocoon somewhere else that's going to do that for them. We have to do this so that they may be firmly rooted, built up in Christ, taught, abounding in thanksgiving, as we read earlier in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. With those firm roots planted, they may weather the storms life throws their way rather than being uprooted or broken down. But let's consider the time a young person spends in the presence of the wider church body of a congregation. Sam Edwards, 
shared a lesson with the youth group not too long ago. He preached actually last week in our youth-led worship, and he shared a riveting message that shines some light on how much time we actually may be devoting to being followers of Christ. The average person who faithfully attends all the services of the church will spend 158 hours a year attending worship. That's three hours a week. That is less than 2% of a year. If a child is getting no other instruction, example, or encouragement to be a resilient and faithful disciple, do you think 2% of one's life is sufficient? If you only attend worship on Sunday mornings and that's it, you don't go to Bible class, you don't go to worship on Sunday evenings, you don't go to worship on Wednesdays, that's just 0.5% of a year. Do you think that's sufficient? Imagine if you only went to work for an hour a week, or if you went to school for only an hour a week. What if you only gave an hour a week to your spouse or your children? I don't think it takes much to understand what would happen with that. Doesn't God deserve more? Are we not called to give more? Are we not called to be his followers, disciples of Christ, with a job description that goes well beyond one to three hours a week? Take anything else in your life and imagine putting the same amount of effort that you put into your, uh, your following of Christ. Would your work suffer or would it thrive if you gave it the same effort you give Christ? What does this tell you about what needs to change in your life? What does this tell us all about what desperately needs to change in our home lives in order to ensure that our children are not just merely being delegated to replacements for one to three hours a week, hoping that they'll be faithful unto death? In Genesis chapter 1, there is a law of God that is stated at least ten times that everything God has created will produce after its own kind. Everything produces, increases, and multiplies after its own kind. If you plant rice, you're going to get rice. If you plant hatch green chilies, you're going to get hatch green chilies, but apparently only once a year for some reason. I don't know what, what's that, what that's all about, but you'll get hatch green chilies. If you're a human, you produce a human. If you're a dog, you produce a dog. That's science. No, that's creation. That's how God created it. Similarly, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus says, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. This, he says, in reference to recognizing false prophets by their fruits. But isn't the same thing true for our children? If the tree is bearing bad fruit, how are we to expect that that which is multiplied from that tree to be good fruit? We certainly shouldn't stick to broken means of raising unfaithful children, hoping that some good fruit may come out of it. Does it happen? Yes, it does. Is it rare? Absolutely. It is more rare for a child to succeed or, or overcome the unfaithfulness of their parents. It's very rare. But we shouldn't be going along thinking that that's the way that we should do it. Church, how can we encourage and build up our families to a spiritual maturity that produces future generations of faithful children, grandchildren, and fruit-bearing disciples who are resilient against the darkness of this world? Change is needed. It can be done. It will be difficult. But let us not be deceived by empty words, and let's get to work. To make a long sermon short, here's the command. Jesus says it's the greatest. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, and with all your might. These words that I command you shall be on your heart, written on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. It is to be a part of our every inch of our being. That's the command. Perhaps you're here this morning and you recognize the real need for change in your life. If you've not devoted your life to Christ in the way the Bible calls us to, make today your day of change. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He hasn't changed, but he can certainly change you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's that change, right? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you desire that new, Christ, that new life, a new creation in Christ, one must be in Christ to do that. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4 tells us how one gets into Christ, that you must be baptized into Christ to be raised to walk in a new life just as Christ was raised from the dead. Therefore, why do you wait? Rise up, repent of your sins, confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've answered that invitation to put on Christ in baptism and you need to restore your life to him. You've strayed away, you've turned your back on him and need the prayers and, and guidance of the church. You need to seek forgiveness. We offer this invitation to you as well. Be restored to the Lord this morning. Finally, if you're here this morning and this lesson has encouraged you to renew your focus on being a Christian parent because you've dropped the ball. You've dropped the ball and you desire to change. Be bold. Stand firm in the truth of God's word. We want to love you. We want to support you in every effort and in any way we can. We offer this invitation to you as well. Repent of your shortcomings this morning. Send the message to your children that you are going to do better for them. That you're going to be doing better for yourself and for the Lord. We offer this invitation to all who need to respond. Don't let fear or shame or sin keep you from taking the steps that you need to take to enact change today. We love you. We want to pray for you. And we want to fight for you and with you. And if we can assist you in any way with that this morning, won't you come together as we stand and sing?